Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You want to I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories in In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you've done Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Blog Talk Radio Show. We're glad you're with us this evening, and um, I can't wait to tell you what, about our, our guests this, this evening. So my name is Kim, and I'm your host this evening. Um, my co-host should be on here as well here soon, Dr. Nancy. And um, we are on scan number 3206 this evening. And um, so NASCA stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And we have a single purpose at NASCA, and that is to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with two goals. One, by educating the public, especially as it's related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths and providing services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone who's interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And again, you can find all that information on nasca.org, and um, that's N-A-A-S-C-A.org. And um, if you would like to be a part of our panel this evening, we'd love to have you join us on that as well. So. You can do that by calling in our guest call-in number, and that is um, 646-595-2118. And we'll let you into the studio and see if you have any questions for our guests this evening. So um, you can also access the show later on and um, in any other past shows by going into Tenasca.org and searching for the scan number. So again, we're on scan number 3206 this evening. And our special guest this evening is David Finch, and he is from far north Queensland, Australia. He's a survivor of severe childhood abuse. His book, Here There Be Monsters, chronicles his youth and how he learned to become a survivor. It's David's hope that other survivors of abuse 
might find healing upon reading his book. He normally focuses on recovery and healing, but he's here today to tell us um, his story and to try and help others that are in need. David tells us about his work. His book is a memoir of his violently abusive childhood, his escape and learning to live after traumatic abuse. The message that he hopes people will take away from this book is that abuse victims can become survivors. There is life, trust, and love after abuse. Most of all, there's hope, he explains. Um, he says he thanks the pandemic for the flood of memoir, for the flood of memories about abuse. This was a project of 25 years, and then flash forward to three years ago, he started completely over. He was no longer an angry man venting at the world, screaming, look at me, this happened to me, he goes on. He has somehow found the grace to separate himself from the anger and write it out as it happened, leaving the listener and reader to make the decisions of what happened back then. He found his center. This book is the result. This is a nonfiction, so easy to read, right? Not really, because the subject, as we all know, is brutal and it's triggering to many who have read it. So he says that he spends on spending the rest of his life trying to educate people on the survival and prevention of child abuse, teaching people how to detect child abuse, and teaching parents how to be able to raise their children without abuse. So we're so happy to um, have David on our show this evening for the first time. So he's a newbie to NASCA, and, but now you are a part of the family for life, David. So I am bringing you on into the studio. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> good morning. Glad you're uh, here. Yes, <laughs> good morning. <laughs> good evening for you. Yeah, yeah we um, have another guy on here that's from Australia as well. And um, he'll come on and he'll say good day, and then he'll say, "Anybody want coffee?" <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I was hoping he'd be on tonight, but it doesn't look like he's on this evening. But we have a couple other people on the the studio as well. That me, a couple other gentlemen who are some of our regular callers, and um, so they may want to ask you some questions as well as we listen to your story. But this is your night, and it's your story to tell. And just know that we're all, you know, here for you and that um, we're survivors, too. And so we kind of can relate to probably certain aspects of your story, even though, you know, they're all different, for sure. But, um, you know, just feel free to go as you like. If you need to take a break, just let me know, and we can take a break. And you can breathe or whatever you no, want I should to be. do. So we're going to do I awesome. should be fine. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Good. So, uh, so I'll let you take it away you want me then. To start at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, go ahead and start at the beginning. Okay. So, uh, for what happened to my sisters and I, to fully explain it, um, I have to give a little background. Um, my birth mother, um, who was the mother of my sisters Lisa, Lori, and my brother Dale, and myself. She passed away um, as the result of a cerebral thrombosis um, the day I was born. 
uh, as a result of a car accident. And this puts us in a situation where my father met another woman two years later who was divorced and had twins, and they got married. And uh, that's where things started to go sideways. Um, We grew up in a house that um, truly sounds like a Cinderella story, and I I understand that it happens a lot with um, adopted children or the favorite children or whatnot. I'm not sure what, I'm sure that there's a syndrome named after it, but I'm not sure the name of it. Um, so, uh, our stepmother, um, didn't like my father's children very much. Uh, uh, and that's an understatement. And she started a campaign, um, very early on to remove us from his life and she could have a perfect little family with her twins and my father and not have uh, his children around to, to get in the way of her perfect world. Um, I'm saying um, and I'm not supposed to. But the first, I don't know, seven years of, of my life, six years of my life, were they were unbalanced. Um, Lisa, Laurie, and I were... Um, treated differently in the household than Monique and Michael. Um, There was a lot of imbalance, uh, unfair treatment. Um, And then the the abuse had started on Lori. I did not know. Uh, I was too young. And we, at about, when I was about seven years, 1974 maybe, we moved to an old colonial um, carriage house, which would be a hotel in the colonial times. Uh, Kit's Tavern. My, uh, my quote-unquote parents bought it, and um, we moved out into the middle of nowhere. And uh, when we lived in our first town, and it was a it was a very closely knit neighborhood. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody could see everything that was going on. Uh, they started with Lori, but it was all very hidden. Um, and but when we got out to West Greenwich, this Rhode Island where we were, um, the seclusion was the it was like the perfect feeding ground for my stepmother's psychosis, and uh, things started to devolve badly. Um, for me, it was. Basically, I was the, and my sister Lisa, excuse me, I don't want to exclude her. Uh, We were basically the household slaves. We were not allowed to bathe. We were not allowed to wash our our clothing. Our clothing would become rags. Um, Every four months or three or four months or so, she would let us wash four pieces of clothing. Um, So we, we stunk. So, of course, in school, we're wearing rags. And we stunk. This was made it even worse because kids are cruel. And um, with me, uh, our stepmother would use food as a weapon against me, starvation, deprivation of food, um, labor from getting up in the morning at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning uh, to go out and work on on the property and 
um, not be allowed to even drink from the faucet without uh, the, the, the hose outside without permission, not to be able to eat any food. Uh, she gets to the point where she inventoried every cookie, cracker, slice of bread in the house. And if any was missing, we would get punished for it. Of course, our our step twins might have been eating some of it, but it didn't matter. It was always us um, in her eyes. And uh, let me see. I'm taking a, a breather here for a second. Yeah, go ahead. So um, with me, the, the plan was starvation with my sister, Lisa. Um, Lisa was pretty. And, well, she still is. I'm sorry. I don't want to offend my sister. She um, was competition from an ink or possibly the fact that my father might have assaulted my sister, Lori. We do think sexually, we, do, we think that it happened, but we have no definitive proof. I was never actually asked, able to ask her that question. She passed on before I found the messages that, that she sent to me about something our father did. And I never really get to ask her. So, so either through trying to, in her own twisted way, try to protect Lisa from sexual assault from our father or just her not liking Monique to be in competition, have competition with a pretty sister, she started force-feeding my sister um, monstrous amounts of food, uh, giving her Valium giving her diet pills just to make her metabolism go up and down, up and up and down where she, her weight just became um, it became an issue and it became a thing where she was, became obese, very obese and she the issues at school, the issues in the house and so on. There was no privacy in the house everywhere we went. Lucille was Look, uh, excuse me, my stepmother, I did not mean to say that name, was lurking around the corner. Uh, I don't want to say her name because I just don't want to give her power. That's how I deal with it. Um, and she would be lurking around the corner, waiting with her big old wooden spoon to just smack us around the head and whatnot. And um, So... Uh, there was a lot of physical abuse. My, my stepmother um, would do the most of the corporal punishment on my sister Lisa, and she would, uh, even at 16 years old, still be taken out in the yard um, by my father. Um, you know, drop her drawers, drop her, drop her underwear, everything out, out in public view of the street to get a spanking. Um, and then that's a very long story, but very short. Um, she was able to, um, get out of the house. Uh, my stepmother, when Lisa turned 16, um, gave her a letter and forced her to bring it to school, which for, told them that she was, did not want to go to school anymore. And, uh, she was letting her giving her permission to stop going to high school and they made her immediately made her go to work so she could take her paycheck. Um, Lisa eventually managed to move out. Um, and, uh, I was left behind. Uh, Lori 
ran away when she was 17, and we, Lisa and I were left behind, and Lisa ran away. Well, didn't run away. She moved out, and I was left behind. And um, it got a little bit worse for me um, because my dispenser of justice for my stepmother was my father. He, um, anything she told him to do, he would do. And uh, any infraction that she imagined to happen, and heaven forbid we didn't break rules when we were in that house, there was, the, the penalty was too high. Anyone who's been abused knows how that works, I, 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 I think. And um, yeah. oh, uh, fun, little pen, fun little, you know, punishments like being forced to uh, move out of the house and live in the outhouse for three months because I was an animal and didn't deserve a little with the humans. Um, uh, and uh, the biggest thing and the longest punishment of all that we had was uh, it was years, uh, five years. Um, we, Lisa and I both were made to sleep in the cellar with the doors locked and the lights out every night. Um, and every morning at the, the five o'clock in the morning, click, the light would come on. It would be time to go out and venture out into the world again. Um, it was, uh, to me, for most of my life when I was growing up, it seemed normal. But um, when I went to high school, um, I met a uh, social worker there who tried to convince me that I needed to talk about my life. He knew something was horribly wrong. I just wouldn't talk about it. And, and most abused children won't talk about it to uh, social workers or what, whatever because they're so afraid of consequences. I mean, I literally, me, and I know my sister, Lisa, we were afraid of dying. We, I literally thought that I would be a picture on a milk carton if I talked. So it was, it was rough. And finally, um, I started to see, I got put in a, a group with other children that were going through household problems. Um, it was the best that they could do in the, in the early 80s. Um, and I met some other kids, and I started to realize that maybe my home life wasn't that particularly spectacular and something was wrong with it. Um, and uh, I started to – I tried to run away a couple times and uh, told the police the first time I got caught everything. I sat there and stopped for like two hours, told them everything that was going on in my house. And then the police brought me back to the house and told my parents that I should be punished for telling such a Cinderella story. And it was, and my parents just told them, oh, yeah, he's a horrible liar. Don't believe him. They could have just gone and opened up the cellar door and looked down there. Everything I told them was true. They could have just looked, but they didn't. Uh, and then I ran away again. I got picked up by the state police in Rhode Island. And oddly enough, the exact same thing happened when I told them everything. So uh, at a certain point, I, became, I started to become very angry. And I, I think Lucille became, bloody hell, my stepmother, became very, very afraid of me because I was a very large person at that point. Um, I was very physically strong, working on the property all the time. Um, and... She didn't want me around anymore, so she decided that she wanted to um, – I, I went to a friend's house off the bus. I refused to go home one day, and 
My father went to pick me up, and he told me, that's it. We're going to the court tomorrow and filing that you're a wayward, disobedient child, and we want to have you put in juvenile hall. And the next morning, I went into school, and I told my social worker what was happening. I finally told him what was happening in some of what was happening in the house. God didn't tell him everything. couldn't tell him everything. Just some. And he contacted somebody that was involved in my life earlier. He was my principal in middle school. And he had tried to help me with my family situation. They knew. They all knew. There was just nothing they could do. And um, oddly enough, uh, Mr. Finch, my middle school principal, called me at, uh, at North Kingston High School. I answered the phone, and he asked me if I wanted to come live with him and his wife. And they actually took me in. And that's where the abuse ended, if you want to take a break. Wow. That sounds just like divine intervention. There. I... Uh, yeah. Um, Scott Hartley oh, we haven't heard my, that story my social yet. worker. So... I'm sorry? I just said we haven't heard that whole story yet, but it sounds like it might have been an intervention. Divine uh, intervention yeah. Um, <laughs> it was... Uh, and obviously, I I didn't cover everything. Uh, the book covers everything, but that took yeah. me three years to write, not 15 minutes on a phone call. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, so is there anything? Yeah, yeah, we'll ask some questions here. I was wondering, um, are the, were the twins younger than you? Or Oddly enough, oddly enough, they were born in April 1966. I was born in August 1966. Oh, okay. So we were all the same, same age. Same grade. Oh, and yeah. The same grade, same everything. Um, as a matter of fact, I should have, doing to my birth date, when the school year started um, in the early 70s, the very early 70s, I should have actually started school a year later because of my birth date, but my stepmother appealed to the state, uh, appealed to the town and said, I've got two kids going. He's only a couple of months younger than them. Can't he go with all, can't they all go together? So I actually got to go to school uh, technically a year early, but um, that wasn't out of the kindness of our heart. That was just to get us out of the house. Yeah. yeah. And I did leave one just- part of the abuse out. Um, it's the part that I typically tend to avoid the most. Um, if you feel like it. My stepmother created the perfect monster in my, ste- in my stepbrother, um, and he sexually abused and also assaulted my sister, Lisa, and he sexually abused and assaulted me for about three years, about once to twice a week. Um, and nobody, I, you, you couldn't tell anyone. You knew nobody was going to believe you. Uh, you knew that you would kind of get punished if you tried to tell anyone. Um, yeah. So that I, I should hard. probably put that little tidbit. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I know that my sister might be listening, and she might be trying. She might try to call in and speak today. I, I'm not sure. She's in Connecticut, in the United States. 
And that's the one that's closest to your age that is the older one that left at 17, a lot older than you? Um, Lisa is my biological sister. Just she Lisa. is three years older than me. And I had a sister that was 10 years older than me, but she did not deal with the abuse well. When she, got, she ran away when she was 17, and the long and the short of it is eventually she got involved in heroin to, to, oh. to, to bury the pain. And she became a lifelong addict, and she passed away several years ago to an OD. Uh, it was just a very, very long, extended suicide, in my opinion. Sorry. Oh, um, I, unfortunately, I knew 10, 15 years before it happened that it was probably going to happen, and there was nothing we could do about it. We tried so hard to get her help, but she just didn't want it. But Lisa Well, it sounds like I, maybe I was... Go ahead. It sounds like maybe there was dysfunction a little bit even before, and you wouldn't have known that because you were born into it, but maybe there was dysfunction happening even before you were born and before he re- your your father remarried and... Um, all of that started happening. It sounds like there might have been some dysfunction before that, if you're old as Well, my father, uh, I, I do know that my birth mother had filed for divorce. My Uncle Roy told me that my birth mother had filed for divorce shortly before she got pregnant with me because my father wanted her to join a wife-swapping club with him, swinging. Um, and then she got pregnant with me, and well, all that went up, you know, the, the divorce went away because you just didn't get divorced when you were pregnant in the 60s. In the 60s. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there was probably dysfunction in the family. Uh, I, I, I am aware that my father had a uh, drunk and abusive father when he grew up. Um, I, I had an extremely abusive father and stepmother when I grew up, but I didn't abuse my children, so I don't, I cannot hide behind that. I cannot accept that as an excuse. Right. Yeah. I'm a I little unforgiving when it comes to stuff like that. Well, yeah. I mean, and you made that conscious decision to not raise your kids in that way and that you weren't going to let them be touched by it. And that's so admirable that you were able to do that. Because it's not always easy for people to do that, you know. Because, like you said, there wasn't a you, you didn't realize that in, anything was wrong. That's what you were born into. You didn't realize anything was wrong, uh, really. And, and the funny part is I, I know I'm my father's child. I have rage just like he had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can get uncontrollably angry, but I know, well, to stop, to take a breath, to calm down, to yeah. do a little bit of... Um, just basically look around and see the beauty in the world around me just to try to calm down. That is um, my, my thing. Uh, so I, I, I know I have the potential to be just as violent as my father was, but I'm not. I choose not to. Yeah. That's, that's a good choice. <laughs> For our kids, anyway, that's uh, a really good choice. 
I mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the greatest dad in the world. I mean. Oh, no. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> my ex-wife and I got divorced and um, not the greatest, I mean, you know, not the great, greatest absentee dad. I live in Australia. They live in West Virginia now. And um, my granddaughter is five years old, and I still haven't had a chance to meet her, and that's more COVID and finances. But um, it's just, yeah, I, 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 I wish I could, I could be a better father, but unfortunately, um, some of the programming that I, and I call it programming, that happened to me when I was a child um, took too well and relationships and long-term relationships and serious relationships and uh, relationships in general are very hard for me um, still. And I'm 56 years old and I got out of there when I was 15. Well, that was pattern, didn't so, you? Yeah. That's the way that you were you, you saw all of that dysfunction in that relationship. So it's hard. Yeah, I think a lot of us could probably relate to that, that we have trouble with relationships. I mean, I've been... Uh, uh, well, I mean, I, I'm married now, and I, have, I love my wife, and I have a semi-healthy relationship with my sister. We trigger each other because we remind each other of the abuse. Um, and that is an unfortunate situation because we love each other very much, but sometimes we just set each other off. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Siblings always do. They know how to do that. <laughs> well, yeah. is it okay if we go ahead and go to the panel and, and see if they have any questions? And can That's we open uh, what I'm here for, I guess. Yeah. 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 Okay. So first we have Billy. Hey, Billy, yeah. you're on here now with David. Welcome. We're how are you doing, David? Just, just admiring uh, your strength. And your strength to tell your story, and uh, I'm a survivor also. Can relate to you with the relationships. I'm 50, 54. My abuse happened at 14 with a priest. Um, I just admiring your story and your strength, and and just keep on telling your story. And um, I'm just going to continue to to listen, no questions. And um, and but I can relate to you with a lot of things that you have said and. Especially, I have an ex-wife too, and my relationships are not letting people in. I, I feel you, and uh, again, good job telling your story and keep telling your story. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you, Billy. Okay, and the next we have Philip on the line. Philip, hello. You're on the line. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm sorry you had to go through that. I hope things get better for you. Just making, did I just get disconnected? No? Okay. Oh, no, did you hear him? Did you not hear Philip? Unfortunately, it sounded like he dropped out. He said, I'm sorry you had okay, to go through go that, and then I didn't hear anything else. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Philip. I hope things get better for you. Uh, thank you, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Kim, that's all I have to say. Thank you, Philip. Okay. Thank you, Philip. Good to hear your voice. Hello. 
And then we have Dr. Nancy on the line as well. So, Dr. Nancy, you're on the line with David. Hey, good night, um, David. Thank you for coming on tonight and sharing your story with us. Um, You know, I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that. Um, One of the things that stuck out to me were um, the fact that, you know, you went to the police for help. And that's supposed to be a place where you're supposed to find safety, security, support, and um, for uh, for you to have to go through that type of reaction from them, I know that was severely hard. And for them to bring you back to the place that you were literally being abused and tortured in, I know that was especially difficult. Um, I hope that today, you know, people are more aware, more trained. And so um, to avoid this from happening to other children, but um, yeah. I just really um, stuck out. And um, I just, I'm really sorry that you had to, um, to experience that. Um, we, we as first responders and as uh, mandated reporters were supposed to be helping to keep our children safe. So when they come to us for help and support, our jobs are to follow up and to report it and to make sure that uh, that we get the child the help that they need. So, um, again, thank you for sharing your story, and I hope that people are listening and learning and that we can do better in keeping our children safe. Thank you for being brave. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. What's funny is um, even in the book I say that um, if I could go back in time and undo what happened, I wouldn't. Um, I am uh, tabula rasa and the sum total of my life experiences. Where I am right now, I would not be. I would not have my wife right now. I would not have my children. Um, if I went back and undid that, and I would, I would never do that. Who I am now is a result of what I went through then. So, um, what well, horrible as it might have been, I think it made me into mm-hmm. somebody that I wouldn't want to change. Right. Even though I, I I would have loved it to have been caught back then. <laughs> yeah, but they really didn't. I mean, I was I right around that same age as well as you guys, and um, yeah, they just didn't pay attention to children. It wasn't they didn't take the children's word. Well, this was the late seventies and the early eighties. Um, to be honest with you, if the Finches hadn't stepped in and intervened. I was out of that house. I would have gone to juvie. And I was out of that house without any agency ever catching them for the abuse, ever. Because I would have gone to juvenile hall, and because I was in juvie, they wouldn't have listened to a word I had to say. They would have told me I was a liar. So the intervention by my adopted family is the only thing that could save me in the in the long run. But the yeah, system is much better now. They, yeah. Well, I mean, in areas, there's still plenty of corruption out there, unfortunately. Oh, there's there is lots of there is lots of room for improvement. Um, however, uh, in Rhode Island, it was called DCF at the time, Department of Children and Families. Mm-hmm. It was powerless. 
in my opinion. Um, they were required to call the families a day before the visit and schedule an appointment. Well, gosh, do you think the kids might be prepped by the time they got there? <laughs> yeah. We sure, we were, we were. I mean, we actually had, and my sister, I, I hope she calls in tonight, can even back me up on this. We had a rack of clothes in the upstairs closet, not in the cellar, that were our four special clothes for when DCYF was coming, for when the family was coming. Um, we had an actual bed upstairs that was made up, that was our bed, but we never slept in it. We slept in the cellar. But when DCF showed up, we'd be all dressed up, standing in our bedroom. This is where he sleeps. And do you think that I was going to break the silence to tell the social worker with my mother standing right there? No. So um, she was very well prepped. And uh, the system that they had back then, they didn't even separate the children from the parents back then to talk to them. So things have changed. Mandatory reporters were not in existence when this happened to me. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Sorry, well, that's um, my kitty. Dr. Nancy? Oh. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say or ask a question or anything else? Or? I didn't mean to touch it. Yeah, no. <clears throat> he's, he's correct. You know, back in the day, um, and even now, they actually still sometimes make appointments to see the kids. Um, and, I, and I know a lot of some some of the people who work in that industry will take the child away from where the parent is and take them somewhere else to ask them questions. Sometimes they step outside and ask the kids questions. Definitely, depending on the agency, sometimes they still do make appointments and the person knows that they're coming and they have time to prepare and or meet somewhere else and make it look like they live there. Um, they still do that, and we talk about these things. So, um, you know, it's just unfortunate. But the importance of you sharing your story, David, is, is just um, very important because this helps to educate the public and it helps to educate people. Um, I grew up in Boston, um, so we used to call um, them DSS, right, Department of Social yeah. Services. And so anything with the word DSS was very, like, uh, Taboo, very traumatic. So they changed the name to um, the D D D facts or D something else now um, in Boston. But um, that DSS, we used to grow up. We're like, girl, don't let them call DSS on you. You know, it was like a very uh, traumatic thing. But the fact, like I said, you know, like you said, that, that we were not educated. We didn't understand about the importance of. Um, mandating, mandating, uh, be, being a mandated reporter and really being a voice for the children. But, again, you know, growing up under that umbrella of what happens in this house stays in this house, and you don't want to be the black sheep. You don't want to be the troublemaker to break the silence and to tell and how much uh, scrutiny you'd be under if you do tell and the importance of keeping these secrets growing up, um, you know, it's just great that we're able to break the silence today and talk about it and create these gateways where people can come forward and start their recovery and their healing because it's severely traumatic. I mean, everything you're talking about, um, even though today has made you the person you are and through your pain you found your purpose and you were able to write your book and help so many people, 
it still doesn't take away from the fact that that child inside has been so severely hurt. It's like it's just not fair, right? It's like there's still work now that we are left to do. And so, um, again, I just want to just thank you for being so brave today and standing up and being a voice for the voiceless and helping to break the silence and the stigma associated with uh, survivors of child abuse. David, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Mancy. Um, yeah, so I'll just kind of, I guess, pick up where you left off, and so you were being adopted then by this other family. And how how did that come about again? Well, I went to um, my, I went to middle school. Uh, at Metcalf Middle School in Western Oaks, Rhode Island. And um, there was a social worker there named John Kashigan, who has passed since. Um, and my principal at the time, Mr. Finch, George Finch, was, um, they were both concerned. They saw incredible disparities between Monique and Michael and I and Lisa. And they just they just saw these disparities, and they saw Monique and Michael walking, you know, Michael walking around. And of course, I'm going to say things that people might not remember from this time. They, Michael would walk around in chino pants and Izod sweaters, yeah, <laughs> and Nike shoes, and not with Nike. Everybody remembers Nike. Um, and Monique would walk around in um, Angora sweaters. Um, Jordache jeans and Nikes, and they both had salon hairstyles. Like they went, they they got perms and everything like that. And Lisa and I would walk around. And I I was wearing women's fabric, uh, women's polyester side zip slacks, um, and ratty shirts. And I wasn't allowed to to, to bathe and. There was such a disparity between us that they knew something was wrong, but they couldn't get Lisa or I to talk, and they, they never would have. Um, but they tried, and they tried, and they tried. And when I went to North Kingston High School, one of my teachers saw something, and I got sent to not the, the school counselor. I got sent to a, the school social worker. Um, his name was Scott Hartway, and he contacted um, – my prior school to see if there was any history and he became familiar with Mr. Finch and Mr. Kashigan at the time. And when I contacted when I told Scott about the fact that they literally had gotten a summons for me to go to juvenile court to be put in juvenile hall, um, he called um, Mr. Finch and, um, and Mr. Kashigan, Kashigan and uh, they sat around and talked about it, and Mr. Finch and Mrs. Finch decided to open up their home to me. Um, that's how that came about. Wow. What a blessing. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, if, you, if you talk about it, if you think about it, it's amazing. Somebody just opened up their, their, their entire life and their house and said, hey, you know, we know that you're having a bad, bad, bad ride here. Come on, the rides are safer over here. Um, now, was their child uh, the same age as you? 
Uh, no, they had uh, one son, John Finch. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. Um, he uh, had been ma- he was married and he moved out, and they had a spare bedroom sitting there that wasn't being used, and just a little bit of serendipity thrown in. Um, and they offered me the room, the uh, place to stay. Um, the first day I was there, um, I was sitting at the dinner table. I ate my very first piece of steak, which was, by the way, quite good. Um, <laughs> and I sat there and I looked at them. I was like, may I have permission to go to the bathroom? And they kind of looked at me like, well, that's weird. And like, you don't have to ask for that. And over the next week, I asked for permission to do anything in the house. And they sort of broke me of that. Um, and I eventually, through Nettie Finch, particularly because I spent more time, my, my, Mr. Finch was at work with the, the middle school. We worked massive hours at the school as the principal. But through Mrs. Finch, I eventually learned to laugh and smile and everything again. But the only problem was that... When I got taken, we, we went to the state house, we went to the courthouse, and the Finches were given temporary custody of me as long as they applied for a foster parentship, because they weren't even foster parents when they offered the house. They had to apply for it. And about three months later, they found out that Lucille was still cashing the check that was my mother's death benefit check that was supposed to support Lisa, Laurie, and I. And they asked for it back, and Lucille, I'm saying her name again. Okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll just say her name. She um, tried to see to get custody of, me at back, custody of me back because she wanted to keep the check. Um, she was brought to court. Uh, they had to, we had to go back to court again, and I had told Mr. Finch just enough stuff that was going in the house for um, him to force them, the, the, the public defender, because I didn't have, they, they said that I needed to have representation, so they assigned a public defender to me because I was a child, uh, minor. And, uh, and because my parents were the ones that were suing against me, so I needed uh, legal defense. So um, eventually they forced them together, and my birth parent, well, my, my, my birth father and my stepmother um, agreed to uh, legally give up custody of me to the Finches. They gave up all rights to custody. Uh, they basically gave up their rights as parents um, because they were being threatened. And then the case got sealed. Yay. Um, so the problem is, is after I got out of that house, um, I, as most abuse, most abused children become very chameleon-like. They, they, they grow and they learn to fit into the room. Um, the consequences are severe if you can't read the room quickly and become what they want you to be in that room. So I went to a new high school. I fit in with everybody. I talked to everybody. And I slowly repressed all of those memories because I didn't tell them how bad the abuse was in the house. Um, and I just buried it, buried it. And I went in almost to a com- almost complete state of amnesia about what happened in that house. I knew something bad happened but I don't remember the details so much. And then a few years later, it all came rolling back. And then uh, started my lovely parade of psychologists, uh, psychiatrists for 
the next 30 some odd years of going in, um, receiving treatment, starting to feel better, thinking I was okay, stopping to take the meds, going off counseling, getting worse, realizing I need help again, and doing it all over again, doing it all over again. And uh, it wasn't productive. Um, then I, once I moved to Australia, um, I met this uh, psychologist named Birgit, and she and I sat down for like three sessions, and she was like, well, you suffer from CPTSD. I already knew that, but it was very necessary to affirm it. Um, and she asked me if I had ever tried EMDR. And we went through a full battery of EMDR, um, almost a year's worth of work. And the flashbacks, which I had all the time, I haven't had one since. The nightmares, which used to wake me up every night for all those years, uh, I might get one once every three months. It used to be every night, sometimes twice a night. So that's when I just, that's when I found my my center where I could actually write this book because I, I I I thought that the story needed to be told. There's, there's not a lot of detail in the the the, the fact uh, of the, the of the treatment I sought because I was very self-destructive through the years. Um, I would, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in this, feel like, ah, I'm doing fine now. I don't need the meds anymore. And uh, finally, um, I've done, I did my EMDR full run, and I've been um, consistent in taking my meds ever since then. So I haven't had a relapse. I haven't had a withdrawal. I'm just chugging on and uh, feeling much better for it. I'm not quite right. sure what else to say after that. <laughs> yeah, do you want to break and see if anybody has any questions again? And... Um, I was wondering if you'd want me to do a reading from the book or anything like that. Or Oh, that'd be great. I don't know if you sure. actually do that. Um, yeah, we could do that. Um, how much? I mean, you know, we've still got 40 minutes. We still have 40 minutes. So, so. <laughs> When he told me the show was going to be 90 minutes, I was like, wow, this is the first show I'm doing ever. And mind you, this is my first show I'm ever doing. And never mind <laughs> your show, this is my first blog ever. And 90 minutes was a huge chunk. But I was like, well, yeah. I can do this. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah and we get, can keep talking. We've got lots of things. <laughs> I got my iPad yeah, sitting right here. And um, this is from, I believe it's the first or second chapter of the book. I'm on my, uh, I'm on my iPad, so it says 4%, so I can't even tell somebody a page. <laughs> but um, if you'd like, yeah. I can start a reading. And oh, I'm probably going to be nervous and stutter. I'm probably going to be nervous and stutter, so. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's not. It's it's one. It's one flashback. It's one flashback. It's might take a couple minutes or five minutes to read. So, okay. I am eight years old, and I am locked in the attic. Again, I am terrified of the attic, 
but my mommy scares me more. She knows I am terrified of the owl. That is why she locked me up here in the first place. I am being punished for a horribly negligent act. I failed to dust the rocking chair in the living room, living room well, in the kitchen well enough, excuse me. I only missed a tiny spot, but that spot is enough to bring out the monster inside her. She gets so angry that she drags me up the stairs to the second floor by my hair and earlobe. As we stand at the door to the attic, she unlocks it. Then she turns around and looks me up and down, gauging my fear. I am unable to hide it. Then her face breaks into that smirk I have come to know so well and to fear so very much. She orders me to go into the attic and stay there until she thinks I am sorry enough. Then she reaches up and pulls the string to turn out the light. With that simple act, she acknowledges my fear of the dark. She shuts and locks the attic door, leaving me alone in the dimly lit attic with no more for company than but my terror. I want to turn the light back on, but I know Mommy will be watching. The thought of being caught with the light on turns my balls to water. I am terrified. There are shadows everywhere, behind every box, in every corner. There is a monster lurking there that wants to eat me. I am certain of that thought. But I also know that if I do not move, the monster won't be able to see me. I huddle down between two boxes, covering myself with a blanket that I find to make myself as small as I can. I hide there, shaking, my teeth are chattering. I start to cry. Alone in the creeping darkness of the attic, my air still hurts from being pulled on so hard. With the tame but the pain takes a back seat to my terror. I hear my mommy for call my brother. I hear my mommy call for my brother and sisters for lunch. But there will be no lunch for me. I know that I am banished. Now I have to go pee, but I'm afraid to call and ask for permission to use the bathroom. If I call out, the monsters are working on me, all of them. I have now wet myself. I am ashamed. My tears continue to dribble down my face. I have been up here for so long. It seems like it has been hours. It must have been hours. I start to doze off. But I jolt awake. Somehow, I nodded off here in my hiding place. When I realize I am still in the attic, and it was not just a dream, I start to shake and cry once again. I cannot stop. Why has my mommy done this to me? Suddenly, I hear the lock being turned on the attic door. The door opens, and the light is switched back on. The blessed light vanishes the shadows and makes the monsters run away. Mommy comes up the stairs and asks me if I am sorry for what I did. I wholeheartedly tell her that, yes, I am very sorry. I swear to her it will never happen again. She smirks that hateful smirk at me and tells me to go downstairs to join the family for supper. I can't believe me stay, she made me spend the entire day up here, left alone in my own private little hell. Am I that bad of a child? I do not understand why mommy, why mommy treats me so. I will try harder. I will do anything to make her love me. That's so powerful. So many descriptive words on how you were feeling. Uh, I have a gift for Gab, and unfortunately, the gift for Gab, I can put it on paper. <laughs> Well, I was wondering, my question was, did you keep any kind of a journal when you were a child? No. Um, I was <laughs> – no. Um, Lucille, my stepmother, uh, when I got home from school, um, my book bag was taken away. Um, 
I wasn't allowed to do homework because there was chores to be done on the property. And um, I wasn't allowed to, once she found out that I loved reading, I wasn't allowed to have books. Um, I wasn't allowed to have journals. I mean, I, <laughs> um, at this point, I had started to rebel just a wee bit, and I had a hiding place where when I was coming home, I would put the book so that she wouldn't see it that I was reading. Um, but the, I didn't have a journal. I had a, I've had a journal um, for a long time now, and a good portion of this book is based on excerpts from my journal. Yeah, just what you remember. So, um, unfortunately, I will never be able to forget these things. And I have discovered that many people that are victims of abuse are unable to forget the memories that of the abuse. Yeah. Well, there uh, are I'm times. Not sure I mean, you do hear people. Yeah, you do hear people that even come on the show that just say, I, I blocked it out. And then there's something that triggers it eventually that um, can bring it back to light. And, yeah, I'll, I don't I'll know what it should be worth. All I have to do is hear a song on the radio from the 70s and 80s, and it'll bring me right back there. Um a lot of my memories are associated with songs, smells. I, I think a lot of us have memories that are based on smells, just good Thanksgivings and awesome Christmas dinners and stuff like that. Um, but the smells I can be quite uh, – the smell of uh, rotten tomatoes. Um, I can't even smell the smell of a rotten tomato with wanting to, without wanting, wanting to vomit um, because of – one incident that happened where I'll, I'll just I'll flash back a little bit here because we have time. Yeah. And uh, there was a time where uh, I, Lisa and I were supposed to go out in the, the tomato patch and pick all of the ripe tomatoes, which we did. And that night the frost hit, which spoiled a lot of the tomatoes on the plants. But Lucille said it was our fault that the tomatoes rotted. So she went out there and she picked all the rotten tomatoes. And she put them on the table in front of us and told us that we had to eat them all because she wasn't going to waste food. Well, um, we started to eat them. And uh, well, Lisa, Lisa threw up. And Lucille made her eat her vomit. And she threw up again. And she made her eat her vomit again. I luckily didn't throw up. I'm not quite sure how I managed to do it. I have a very, I'm very easy to make vomit. If I smell somebody else's vomit, I'm just, I, it's just like one of those horrible comedy movies where everybody starts to throw up. Um, but they just continued to make her, Lucille just continued to make her vomit for like an hour at the table um, until she allowed her to leave. So certain, <laughs> certain things, when I smell them, it just brings me back to that moment. Um, now, so, did, did either one of your sisters ever try to maybe get you out of there? I mean, especially the sister that's only three years older. She 
had to have known what you were going through even by the time she left. Here's the problem with that. I, 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 I was angry for a lot of years that she left me behind. And uh, here's the problem with that. And I've come to a realization, and my counselor talked to me about it, and I've talked to her about it. We had it out one time, but we've talked it out. The fact is, Lucille and Dale, my father, allowed Lisa to move out when she was 17. She was terrified because she was still a minor child that if she tried to drop a dime on them, they would make her move back in because they legally could have at the time. So she was so afraid of them that she wouldn't rock the boat. And I I can't blame her for that because I'll tell you what, I was just as afraid of them. Pretty much my answer for that one because this really – you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda um, is a, a something that I can't do anything about anymore. And I, I do honestly believe that there's uh, – Lori, when she ran away, once she was 17, I don't think she knew that the, the, the abuse was going to transfer over to Lisa and I. Um, yeah. And then when it did transfer over and Lisa got out – she was too afraid of Lucille and Dale to try to do anything. And I understand that. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just hear that people who get out of those situations have the ability to maybe go on and adopt their little brother or something, but it's not always the case. Like I said, the funny part about me getting out of there had nothing to do with the state, had nothing to do with CPS or DCF or DCYF. It had to do with the fact that Lucille was afraid of me. That's it. Or else I would have, if she hadn't become afraid of me, I would have, I would have, I don't know where I'd been. Um, I was too such, I was so angry. By the time I got out of that house, I was so angry that I physically had dreamed up ways to get revenge while I was in the house. And if I had stayed there a few months longer, this would be, I think that this would be a completely different story and a completely different interview. Um, Because something bad would have happened, I think. I can't can't know for sure because it didn't happen. But I was um, yeah. one very, very, very angry six foot one, 15 year old that had done physical labor his entire house life with uh, 125 pounds because I barely ate. But what I had was just all pure muscle, and I was very angry. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's a very good thing I got out of there because I shouldn't probably talk about my I'm not sure of, of, but I haven't spoken to a lot of abuse victims about the fact that I had gotten to the revenge phase. I was living in that house and I wanted to get revenge. And I don't know if that's a common thing among abuse survivors. I would think it would be, but I don't know. Because at, yeah. at some point, you everybody fantasizes 
about something. So maybe you might have some feedback on that. Yeah, well, of course, I mean, we're all going to probably navigate toward what feels good. And if, um, if, if it's not feeling good, then you know that it's going to, and it's trauma as a child because um, you don't know any different. But you know that you don't like this, what's happening. And is it common with other people, you know, with that kind of, I know that that went through my head as well as a child. You know, are other people going through the same things that I'm going through at home? And it wasn't until I was, um, I think it was at a friend's house that I started to realize, you know, that their family interacted a lot different. And Oh, God. So, the day that you realize, wait, this is the way normal families act? Wait, hold yeah. on. This is a normal family. Then what the hell is one? What, where am I living at? Yeah. For me, that yeah. was uh, what is I, um, <laughs> another time I ran away. I ran for, ran away for a week to a friend in a friend of mine's house in North Kingston High School, um, and I spent a week at his parents' house. And I, I just I couldn't understand literally and logically. I couldn't absorb how different it was in that house much- compared to my house. I just couldn't accept it, literally. And then, of course, my father showed up in his van screaming at them. He was going to have them arrested for harboring a runaway, and I had to go back. Um, so, yeah. Um, it's, it's one of those weird things that, um, that, that I remember the day that that realization hit me, just how wrong my house was my household was. And notice I have never used the word home. <laughs> never will. Not when it comes to that place. Um, the day that you, you realize that something is very broken in your life and that you are not living the same life that most of the people around you are living in, the school, in your school year or in your school group, um, it's it's kind of devastating. I, I don't know if it devastated you when you had that realization. Realization. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, by that point, <laughs> I was a teenager, and you've got a lot more resources. To, even though it can still get you in trouble, but you've got a lot more resources of outlets that you can do, you can go to or whatever, like your friend's house. Um, What's, what's funny is even today, today's world, there's social media. There's so much more out there where people will notice abuse in the world around them. Um, and on the road that I grew up on, Weaver Hill Road, um, I have had many people tell me on my website and whatnot that, oh, when they drove by, when they drove by, they knew something was horribly wrong. They knew the way that Lisa and I were dressed compared to Monique and Michael. They saw that we were always, from sunrise to sunset, out in the yard, on the property, working on the stone walls or the the, the vegetable patches or, or something, just mowing the lawn eight and a half acres with a, with a push mower. Um, that my, my stepbrother, when he got permission to do the lawn, he got to use the riding lawnmower, but I wasn't allowed to use the riding mower because I might break it. Um, 
And uh, yeah, God, I think I might have a little resentment here. But uh, well, yeah, it is resentful. Just a lot of you things. That, 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 yeah, and then when you suddenly realize that, hey, uh, mm, gosh, uh, this sucks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, yeah. sleeping in the dark in the basement, crying my pillow because of how unequal it was. Mm-hmm. And, and we're so aware. Course, this yeah. Social media now, um, people see that. Back then, they would drive up and down Weaver Hill and be like, oh, we saw this skull. We knew something bad was going on. We didn't know how bad. And so many people have said it. And, but today's day and age... Everybody would be send a text to their neighbor. Hey, do you see this going on right at the Harder House? Yeah, what do you think? Oh, and they talk to a couple more people, a couple more people, and then Sheriff Bailey down at the West Corners Police Station is going to get a call. Um, yeah. We didn't have social media back then. Uh, we didn't have any answering machines back then. So um, <laughs> the world has changed. So it's, it's getting better, but my problem is that abusers are becoming smarter. Yeah, I love television oh, shows yeah. like CSI, NCIS. I love the criminal investigative shows. But people can watch them to learn how to get away with crap. Right, I and we're making, <laughs> There are yeah. the abusers are becoming more intelligent. My stepmother Lucille. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wow. <clears throat> is a sociopath, in my opinion, and several of my workers through the years have heard like almost a year or two of what she did, and they are of the opinion that because of the way that she did, and she treated Monique and Michael like uh, Prince Charming and the, the Disney princess, and she treated us like, like we were rubbish, um, that she was a sociopath. Um, I just... And she was brilliant. I think she would probably get away with it in this day, this day and age. Because Lisa and I would still, to this day, I don't care what person got involved, we would not talk about it. We wouldn't have said Jack or Billy. Um, and mandatory reporters are all well and good. But at some point, the kids have to actually open up and tell, say what's going on for charges to be brought. Right. Right. And, again, it goes back to they might not even know that anything's going on. You know, things seem weird to them, maybe because they got a glimpse of something better, but um, they may not really even know. Would it be okay to to see if anybody on the panel has any questions? Uh, Sure. Yeah, I have no problem. (laughs) That's what I'm here. (laughs) All right. Let's go ahead and bring... Hey, Billy, are you there? You're back on. I'm here. Did you have anything else? Yeah. So, David, I have a question. Uh, I've been looking into EMDR. How how long did you do that for? And and did you continue with your, um, like, I feel as though it's very important, too, to be talking to you. Yeah. Like, I do therapy twice a week. And I I think I've heard heard a lot of good things about it, been to a couple seminars. Um, was it important to continue with your therapist too as you were going through the EMDR? Well, my, my psychologist was the one who was doing the EMDR. 
Uh-huh. Um, so yes, in that in that particular EMDR, um, what you're going to do is you're going to sit down with the EMDR specialist, which is usually a psychologist, um, and they're going to do a few weeks of prep work with you. They're going to do the I'm going to get to know you, what the core issues that you have are, and then they're going to give you a piece of paper and they're going to say, write down your 10 worst memories and write down your 10 best memories. I'm sure you've heard this by now. And then have you seen the the light bars and the little headphones that you put on for the sound directionals? No, I haven't. Um, well, it's, it simulates rapid eye, uh, rapid eye movement. So um, basically, while the therapist is talking you through the memory and you're visualizing the memory, your eyes are tracking back and forth in the lights, and the sound is alternating between errors matching the light bar going back and forth, and it simulates REM sleep. And the theory uh-huh. is that... It, the theory is that while you are in REM sleep, your mind files away your memories. And when you have PTSD, your mind hasn't properly filed it away. And the MDR gives you a chance while you're focusing on that memory for your mind to shuffle it over to where it goes to a place where it starts to fade. has less okay. impact on you. All right. Thank um, you. It's, uh, it sounds like when I, I remember when Bridget first asked me, have you ever heard of EMDR? And she showed it to me on a little video on YouTube. I was like, that sounds kind of like a witch doctor. Yeah. Um, but the success rate of people who have done a full, full treatment is like 85%. Oh, wow. That's, that's um, really good. I, I don't go to, I do not go to counseling anymore. Um, I don't actually go to speech. I just take my medication. Yeah. And um, I am doing all right. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying I don't have yep. bad days, uh, but it's a hell of a lot better than it was before I did the EMDR. Now, for my EMDR, I did uh, like 10 visits where we did the getting to know each other and learning how to visualize because I can't visualize pictures in my mind. Um, I actually had to use pictures um, yeah. and learning how the process was going to work. And then we did 31 sessions of EMDR. Nice. Um, right. I live in Australia and yeah. um, medical is free here. So <laughs> nice. um, yeah. the price, can, the price might be in prohibitive depending on who you're dealing with and what they want to charge you for it. And if you have a medical plan that covers it. In the United right. States, it's really rough with uh, psychology, psych, psychology because a lot of it, yeah. they only cover so many visits a year and so on. Nice. I, I really but appreciate EMDR that. is very – if you look into if – you, if you actually read up on it, he said you've been to a couple of seminars, or yeah. uh, if you look into it, it is it considered cutting edge in the treatment of PTSD or – considered quack, quack medicine, depending on which doctor you talk to. Uh, thank, so it's thank you. poison. You can do talk therapy, and talk yep. therapy, you can do talk therapy for 20, 30 years, um, and that helps just fine. Or you can do PTSD, and if you have a successful treatment of PTSD, you might not ever have to go to see that psychologist again. Yep. It's just uh, luck of the draw. Yep. 
You won't know until you try it, right? I I really appreciate Correct. your feed, your feedback on it, and you know we talked about you talked about what what abuse does. I I use the term murder of the murder of the soul, and um, you know I can also relate to the anger. Um, you know the priest that did this to me is still a priest in Massachusetts, and that angers me. He's about two miles from my apartment, so I can feel you with the with the revenge part of it, and I just want to tell you what a great job you did tonight. And um, and like I said earlier, I could continue speaking your story and um, stay strong, and you did an awesome job tonight. Thank you so much. Fortunately for me, my abuser lives 9,600 miles from me, so there's a very little urge for revenge. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Good, good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. So does your dad, is he still married to her? He passed. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but he was up until then. The sad fact is that I still, we've talked about, the, I, I talked about this with my sister, and uh, the fact is that we still love our dad, even though Lucille made him do some pretty horrible stuff to us. He was he was a dad. I mean, it's just he's the guy who taught me how to sure. ride uh, play play catch. He's the guy who taught me how to ride a bike. He's the guy who taught me, you know, I don't know how to pee standing up. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of things. <laughs> That's um, important. I, 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 well, I I remember I remember being potty trained. I remember back to about when I was about a yeah. year and a half old. So I remember very far back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just remember being very fond of the man until, well, I wasn't anymore. Um, and then he passed, and all these feelings came crashing down on me that I just didn't think were ever going to be back again. But once he died, uh, they all came back. And um, I, th- I think it happened to my sister as well. And uh, it's just – it's. It's scary that we. I actually care about one of my love one of my abusers, but I think it's actually. It has to be fairly common. I mean, there. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it is really common. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember Lisa. My sister Lisa went to met my father after I was out of the house several years after she met him at a I guess like a Dunkin Donuts or something and she said a coffee shop I think and she asked if he she could be part of his life and he would talk to her and 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 come and have coffee with her sometime and he told my sister and I think this is a quote I can't cheat on my wife with another woman oh oh gosh that's what she considered. Yeah, she she considered him. talking to his own daughter cheating on his wife. So, yeah, she... Um, she had him pretty much, yeah, had him around her finger. She, or, my father, in his defense, and I, I, I say this very, very not really in his defense, um, my mother died from complications to a car accident, like I said, from a cerebral thrombosis or whatever, um, when, I was, uh, when I was born, basically. My brother, uh, my brother Dale, 
10 days later was out riding his bike in the neighborhood and he was hit and killed by, uh, by a, um, by a driver on the street. Um, so he had a, a pretty rough stretch there and, uh, he met my stepmother and he had just received a very, very, very handsome settlement from court for a wrongful death suit, uh, for my mother's death. And uh, that's right when he met my stepmother. And um, I will tell you, she married him in a heartbeat because, well, a guy who has that much money. money in the 60s. Um, yeah. yeah, and she latched on to him. So uh, I think I just completely sidetracked your conversation. But, no, that's okay. Uh, that was, <laughs> no, that's okay. You're talking about, how, about having him wrapped. Oh, okay. Well, because he was wrapped around yeah. a pinky finger. Um, he, um, <laughs> yeah. He never. He didn't want to lose another wife. And growing up around that house, it wasn't very long before I figured out that Lucille used sex as a weapon to weaponize my father towards us. As in, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to withhold. So she basically controlled him through. Uh, yeah, uh, whenever she was uh, losing an argument with him, she'd have a hypoglycemic attack and have to go to the hospital. Um, yeah, lovely lady, lovely lady. Uh, well, um, the doors of heaven slam their Nancy. face. Let's bring Dr. Nancy back on and see if she had a question. I was going to bring Dr. Okay. Nancy back on and see if she had a question for you in the last few minutes of our show. Are you there, Nancy? Yes, hi. Thank you. Hello. Kim, I appreciate you. Hi, David. Um, Hello. You know, again, you're doing a wonderful job sharing your story, and it's so needed. Um, you were talking about triggers and, and the fact that you remember the smell of the rotten tomatoes, and a, and a lot of us can relate to that as far as having triggers to smells and things that bring us back to a place that some certain colors we can't be around, certain smells we can't be around, because it connects us back to a memory. So, um, you know, I just, I did have a question, um, if your father ever protected you at all, did he ever say, okay, wait a minute, hold on, did you ever see him, like, stand up for you at least once when uh, your stepmother was being abusive and hurting you and doing all these horrible things to you and your siblings? I can only remember one time, once. Okay. Um, I missed the bus coming back from North Kingston High School to West Greenwich. It was a 17-mile drive, and Lucille, who was home and my father was at work, said that she wasn't driving to pick me up, and you have to walk home. Um, and about five minutes later, my stepbrother runs up to the phone and calls Lucille. He missed the bus, too. So Lucille came, picked him up, and let me walk, and, and made me walk home. Oh. And she would go, she, would, she both drove Michael back home, uh, and then, wow, well, I said a name, whoops, uh, drove Michael back home, and then she would pull up a quarter mile ahead of me. She, she drove all the way back, pull up a quarter mile ahead of me until I caught up to her, pull up a quarter mile ahead of me until I caught up to her, make sure that nobody mm-hmm. gave me a ride home. And then at about... I don't know, school got out at 2.40 at about 7.30 at night. 
my father pulled up in his beat-up old Econo van, pulled up beside me and said, get the hell in the truck. And he drove me home. That was the only time I can remember him actually ever going against what Lucille wanted to do. (laughs) It saved me about seven more miles of walk, but um, I wasn't that impressed with it back then. I I walked for a very long time. I was very tired, and I I wasn't impressed with it. Uh, But, yeah, that was – I I don't know if Lisa can remember it, him doing that, but I I know for me he did not intervene at all. Um, Because for him to intervene, well, Lucille would just make his life hell. If that's a good, well, if that's an answer to your question. Yeah, that, that's an answer. And, um, you know, like you said, you lost your mom and, and, you know, now this person was just being so evil. So um, did you forgive her? And how did she end up being out of the picture if I've missed that part? Where is she today? Um, when it comes to my stepmother, um, I frequently say this, God forgives, I do not. I have never found it within myself to be able to forgive her for what she did to me and to my sisters. And I know that that is contrary to the good healing process. But um, I'm going to be honest, in in this one particular case, I'm going to say I really don't care about that part of the healing process because I, I just, I can't find it in me to do it. She tortured us for years and years and years. And I, I just, I just don't see that. I can't. And, uh, well, that's your, yeah, truth. That's, that's your truth and that's where you oh. are. And we have to respect that. And, um, oh, it is? everybody's process. Well, yeah, I, I just honestly couldn't, I, I can't bring myself to forgive somebody that doesn't think that they need forgiveness. She's a sociopath. She literally doesn't think she ever did anything wrong. So how can I forgive her or, or even accept an apology for her when I know that she doesn't think, literally doesn't think she ever did wrong? And then my, my last question was this, um, where is she today? She lives uh, in... Uh, a backwoods town in Rhode Island, and um, nice half million dollar townhouse and a Mercedes Benz. Is she still with your uh, dad? No, he passed. Like I said, he he passed a few years ago. But y'all know we're getting ready to wrap up. So go ahead, Miss Kim. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Just hope everybody. Uh, Hope everybody takes a look at um, my book here, There Be Monsters. It's available on Amazon. That's all i got to say, promoting okay. the book. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you um, want to give out your email or anything if somebody wants to get in touch with you or uh, Facebook? Or how do you how – um, Literally, how if you go on Facebook, if you type in David L.H. Finch, on Facebook, you're going to see my face holding. You're going to see me holding a koala, and it should be one of the first results, search mm-hmm. results. Or you can okay. search "Here There Be Monsters" 
Um, here there'd be monsters. It's a um, it's a Facebook website. But you would have to join, ask for permission to join. But I you know I, I let people in once I vet them. Um, so I have here uh, David L H Finch on Facebook. I have um, here there'd be monsters prevent child abuse site, which has 1,100 people on it now. And um, I am of an email of traxiussarlman at yahoo.com. So it's T-R-A-X-I-U-S-S-O-R-R-O-W-M-A-N at yahoo.com. And that is a long email. <laughs> well, thank you for, for giving us that information because some people might want to get a hold of you. And, and so if they want to just check in. So I, did, I sent you a Facebook request. So um, and I I can't wait to check out your 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 book as well. But thank you so much for being here this evening. Thank you, Dr. Nancy and and Billy for being on, and Philip who must had to leave a little bit early, but um, we're glad that you guys are always on. So as we always thank say, there's enough adult people out there to watch out for all children. So please, 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 if you see something, say something. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.